0: Hello and welcome to Murder and Mediumship. I'm your host, Catherine, psychic medium, self-worth coach, and true crime addict. And my husband, Michael, is back with us this week as sweet Chelsea and I were having some technical issues, so I've got him plopped down next to me ready to record, so yay!
1: Really appreciate being the stand-in.
0: <laughs> well, marriage. <laughs> so... Before we get started, I want to say thank you to Nicole McKenzie for your review on iTunes. One awesome way to help the show reach more listeners is to leave ratings and reviews on iTunes because every star helps us land in the ears of new listeners. As you know, the show has tried to feature mainly underreported BIPOC cases, and with it being Black History Month, I wanted to start the month off with featuring a legend in the music community. I got outvoted last month when the show featured Tupac instead, but the music lover in me and the nerd is really excited to cover another death in the music industry that is also widely contested, but maybe less known by this generation. I mean, my generation, if you're listening and you're a part of that. Otherwise, I guess that doesn't make any sense. You're an older millennial, right,
1: Mike? I've never heard of him.
0: (laughs) He's bitter about it. If you have ever, if you have never heard of Sam Cooke, then please go to wherever you listen to your music and listen to some of his. The man is known as the father of soul, and his death in 1964 was ruled a justifiable homicide. But you know, we don't believe that, or we wouldn't be featuring him on this episode. So to get to it, Of course, the disclaimer, everything you hear on the show is my own intuitive guidance. It has nothing to do with the actual law, blah, blah, blah. I'm not accusing anybody. That kind of stuff, right? So on December 11th, 1964, police were called to the Hacienda Motel, a $3 a night motel in a bad part of town in LA. Another black man was found dead in a seedy motel, which was nothing for a notoriously racist LAPD. The victim's identity wouldn't be known until hours later, long after he was found propped up against the motel manager's office door with nothing but one shoe and a sports coat on. Dead. The way that the police handled his case is strikingly similar to the way that homicide cases are handled by law enforcement even today. We're talking around the same time as the death of Emmett Till, and if you didn't listen to that episode, stop this one, go back listen to that one, and then come back to this one. Emmett Till was violently and horrifically murdered in Mississippi in 1955 for whistling at a white woman. He was beaten and thrown into a river with a gin fan around his neck at the hands of the husband and brother-in-law of the woman who had accused him of whistling at her. However, it would come out years later that she had made the accusation up entirely.
1: It is such a sad episode. You guys should really go back and listen to it.
0: Sam Cook was born in 1931 in Mississippi in the very state where his great-grandmother had been a slave. His father, a minister, moved them to Chicago where Sam grew up, much like Emmett Till. And if you listen to that episode, we kind of go over something called the Great Migration where you see millions of people of color moving up north to escape the Jim Crow laws and, and everything that was created to be able to imprison them and keep them down just to keep them down what am i trying to say mike to keep them oppressed
1: yeah it's like the civil war never really ended
0: exactly so things that were completely legal for them to do like walking down the street was then deemed illegal to do if they had a curfew they had to have an employee card stuff like that they could be arrested for loitering and if it's their word against a white cop. Obviously, they're going to be arrested and then basically made to work for free in things called like chain games and chain gangs. That's a tongue twister and, and other stuff like that, where they were being leased out essentially, but they weren't making the money the prison system was. So regardless, he wasn't directly exposed to the harsh Jim Crow South and he grew up in a really nice part of Chicago surrounded by success in a community heavily populated with people of color. Even in Sam's childhood, he was always singing and created a group with his siblings called Singing Children at the age of six. In his teens, he was invited to become a singer in the Highway QCs, which was a very popular gospel band. After graduating high school in 1948, he was offered the opportunity to join the Soul Stirrers, the very group he had modeled the quintet after. So just out of high school, and this group is actually, from what I understand, very well known in the gospel community. It's not something I would have ever heard of, but gospel, actually gospel, I love gospel music, but it's not something I seek out to listen to. As you would guess, though, Sam didn't stick with strictly gospel music for long because he would eventually become known as the father of soul, right? In fact, you can find a lot of places where his parents begged him, and family members and church members begged him not to release any secular music and to stick with gospel. But he did what he wanted to do, and in 1957, after branching out and exploring the secular side of music, he recorded his first single, Lovable, but did so under a pseudonym, Dale Cook.
1: Really out of a stretch on that one.
0: <laughs> he really did, because he didn't want to be caught. Performing music that wasn't God's music, the son of a preacher. So, I mean, can you imagine though? And he was also um, from a really large family. I believe he was one of eight. And I did read somewhere that his voice was just too identifiable for him to not get caught with that pseudonym. So, I mean, even if he had changed his last name for his false name, I think he would have been caught fairly quickly. But anyway, It wouldn't be long until his number one hit, You Send Me, came out and fans went wild for him. He moved his wife, Barbara, and their three children into a home in Hollywood Hills and was topping the charts left and right. During his career, he had 29 top 40 hits. He went from gospel singer to famed solo artist and was performing all over the country. However, not long after moving into his Hollywood home, his youngest son, Vincent, a toddler at the time, fell into the family pool and drowned while his wife was briefly inside. After that, Sam was never the same again, and I can't imagine anyone could be though. After this tragic loss, he began pouring himself even more heavily into his work and music and pouring more into his glass as he began drinking heavily and sleeping around on Barbara. The couple would eventually separate. I mean, can you imagine losing a child that way?
1: Uh, I know it's definitely one of the highest ranking reasons for a couple separating.
0: Child loss. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And I mean, you add to that the fact that he's on the road all the time. And I was reading as well that he, while he blamed Barbara for Vincent's death, he also heavily blamed himself for never being there. Uh, during all of the stress and loss and success, though, the death of Emmett Till still rang in his ears. And Emmett was killed in 1955. So his success really started in 57. This is just two years later. And Emmett Till grew up in Chicago as well, if you remember. So he wasn't satisfied with the fact that he was performing for white people while people of his own color and background were not allowed to attend these shows. And there is a lot that I'm glossing over in this episode, or it would be hours upon hours long. The way that Sam Cooke stood up for performers who were of color and for show attendees, for what am I trying to say, for fans and, and people in general of color, it was incredible the way he showed up. And his fame started in 57. He was murdered in 64. So he really only had about seven years to push for all of this Um, social reform but he did he advocated really heavily and he was being forced to take the colored taxi or the colored bus rather than being driven to the airports or to his venues so they would show up at a venue and they wouldn't even be allowed to take a cab to it or to get a cab to the airport because white taxi drivers wouldn't take them and quote colored taxi drivers weren't allowed to pull up to the airport so here he is a celebrity being treated like garbage. They were being denied tables in restaurants and turned away from hotels. And if you watch the, documentar- the documentary, The Two Deaths of Sam Cooke on Netflix, you'll hear composer and director Quincy Jones talking about how they would even sleep on cots at the mortuary or in empty coffins there. Can you imagine being the performer and being treated like total garbage by the people hiring you? to perform as well as by the paying patrons of your show.
1: That's completely unbelievable.
0: And if you do that math, this is the 1950s. How many years ago was that, Mike? 70. 70 70-ish, yeah. He's looking at me like I'm not too bright here, but I don't do numbers. So 70 years ago, I mean, my mother is in her 60s. Her mother absolutely was alive during this time. Most people know someone who was living through all of this. And this is exactly where we were. This is not history in the sense that it's just in the books and no one remembers it. His own great grandmother was a slave in the state he was born. And here he was performing as a celebrity, something she could have never imagined. And still he's being held back just because of the color of his skin. And he and I'll get into this later, but the way that he pushed for education and reading and, and really educating the black population, all he wanted was for them to be able to rise up and be treated equally. And I've never associated his name with the civil rights movement. And that's part of why I wanted to cover his death, because a lot of people, especially my age, I'm in my 30s, I've asked, do you know who Sam Cook is? And they don't even know. And I really think that he should be known for this. Regardless, in the two deaths of Sam Cooke, it's about his physical death and then how they stripped him of his reputation when he was killed as well. So, Sam was breaking down barriers, becoming the first major black artist to sign with RCA Records. He still wasn't happy with his deal. There were times that he and his crew and other performers were paid in cocaine instead of money. Oh.
1: It was rampant back
0: then. It was was it rampant back then?
1: Yeah, it was a coke. The drink.
0: Oh my God. Okay. Regardless, Michael doesn't research before he makes any statements. So please just take him, worth the loving, incredible husband he is, as the standby <laughs> on the show. But they paid them in cocaine. Can you imagine taking a bag of cocaine to the bank and investing that, paying your bills with that? No. So. They were doing this, though, obviously only to artists who were of color. They weren't paying white artists like this. And he wasn't receiving as much cash either as he was supposed to be from his royalties. And that's actually a severe understatement, which we'll get into. So when he wasn't satisfied with the way that others treated him, he started his own publishing company and even his own record company in order to control his money and his music. Yet again, making history as the first person of color who fought for and received songwriting and publishing rights to his own music. So as Sam became more immersed in in his politics and breaking down barriers, he would be featured on shows like The Guy Mitchell Show, The Ed Sullivan Show, and The Dick Clark Show, among so many others. And he was actually on The Dick Clark Show a number of times And evidently, they would record it in New York City, but they would also record in Atlanta, Georgia sometimes. So, right? So he's, Mike's learning something new today. So when he was set to record in Atlanta, Georgia, the KKK had actually just bombed a Jewish synagogue the weekend prior to when he was supposed to be performing. So they wanted a heavier law enforcement presence. And in asking for this heavier law enforcement presence, they were afraid to really have that dynamic because the KKK was so heavily involved in law enforcement or vice versa. I'm not even sure how to make that statement. But they had threatened to bomb the studio, to kill Cook, to kill producers. They threatened Dick Clark, anyone who would go there. All of these threats were made, but Dick Clark and Sam Cook decided they would still perform the show And the whole reason behind this, because he had been on the show before, but it was because of the fact that while he performed in Atlanta, Georgia, his backup singers were white. And this was unacceptable to the KKK. So the show went on and the National Guard came in to provide safety for all who were involved. And again, with law enforcement and strong ties with the KKK and the South, I have no idea how safe all of that actually was. But he did what he did, and he did it knowing that he was putting himself in danger because he knew that he had to be the one to do this. And I think that's so profound, so so profound, even at such a young age. So on December eleventh, nineteen sixty four, Sam, who, if you recall, was now quite the womanizer and really enjoying his fair share of women through his fame, he was having dinner at a place called Martoni's in. L.A. where a lot of other musical legends and famous people would dine and drink, and he was with a friend of his, Al Schmidt, his friend and producer, and Al's wife. Evidently, Cook had had a lot to drink that evening, as his drinking had increased after the death of his son, Vincent. Throughout dinner, Sam was waving around a wad of $5,000 cash Really, I mean, that's a lot of money to have out and wave around. And according to Al, he was telling him, like, put it away, put it away, stop waving that around. This is dangerous. Like, why are you doing this? And he and his wife left when Cook had gone up to the bar and he was supposed to meet up with them later. He cozied up at the bar with this woman, Elisa Boyer, a woman he had been out with before, but this wasn't known until his family hired their own private investigator in this case. But Anyway, he was hanging out up at the bar with Elisa Boyer, a woman he had been out with before, and I really feel like here that she knew he was going to be there. Whether he told her so or not, she was there to see him after dinner. Various friends had warned him about being out with her, but he ignored them anyway. He was supposed to meet up with Schmidt later at a nightclub, but he didn't arrive until 15 minutes before closing, drunk and with Elisa. The club turned him away and Schmidt had already left. And evidently, he only had this amount of money on him at the time because he had taken cash out to go buy Christmas presents and stuff like that for friends, for family. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had that amount of cash. But according to Boyer in her police statement, Cook drove her drunk in his brand new Ferrari 15 miles away from that nightclub to the Hacienda Motel. And checked in around two thirty-five in the morning. Now he drove all of this way with a wad of cash, past nice hotels, to go to a seedy motel. First of all, I understand some hotels may not have accepted him because he was a black person looking for a hotel. However, you would think that because this is where he lived and he knew the area, he probably knew of some nice places to take women, especially if he was already sleeping around.
1: Or he just knew of some nice places that weren't so nice, but didn't talk.
0: Like Hacienda? mm
1: mm-hmm.
0: interesting, interesting perspective. So according to her, they go these 15 miles out of the way, they go to the Hacienda Motel, They check in as a married couple because in 1964, you had to. So they were signed in as Mr. and Mrs. Cook. And you know, this is something else. Elisa Boyer was a, she was, um, she was Asian American. So she, Maybe they wouldn't have allowed them to check in together in different hotels. I don't know. I mean, it's possible. Not something I've looked into, but just thinking they were interracial, maybe that would have been a problem.
1: There were similar prejudice among all non-white. Right. And it didn't really matter.
0: Right. So I don't know. Just speculating. Maybe it could have been any number of reasons they went there, but we'll share our thoughts on that or at least my thoughts on that in a little bit. So, Boyer claims that he dragged her into the bedroom, pinned her on the bed, and tore off her clothes. But she sat in the car waiting for him to get this room calmly. Didn't try to get help. And then all of a sudden, he's dragging her into the bedroom. He's pinning her down on top of the bed and tearing off her clothes. And then, you know, he thought, I'm in the heat of the moment. I'm totally going to rape this girl. But first, I'm going to go to the bathroom. So he takes his clothes off, goes to the bathroom. And when he was evidently in there long enough that she had time to collect her clothes and oops, accidentally grabbed his clothes, too, and ran out the door. Okay. now she runs down the street wearing her clothes Carrying his, which had his wallet in it.
1: Of course it did.
0: Of course it did. And uh, she called the police from a phone booth claiming she had been kidnapped. Even though she waited in the unattended car while he checked in. Regardless, and I haven't heard it, the call itself, but the rumor is that this phone call, she sounded very relaxed and not panicked at all saying she didn't really know where she was but she had been kidnapped she thinks she had been kidnapped and uh she just needed help she was nearly raped so this man waving around all this money takes her to this crappy motel and she steals his money from him while he's in the bathroom before raping her but stripped both of them down i mean it just it sounds off right i mean that sounds off right absolutely So after he comes out of the bathroom, he finds no one in the room and his clothing missing, except for his sport coat. So he goes to the hotel manager, excuse me, motel manager, Bertha Franklin, knocks on her office door. And according to Franklin, the quest to find Boyer turns violent and Cook breaks down her office door, trying to get to her, looking for Boyer seeing like, where's the girl? Where's the girl? And he chokes her, twisting her arms and demanding to know where Lisa was. She later has no marks on her body. Okay. Franklin insists that she fought him and kicked and bit and scratched and beat him with a broom and was able to grab her. And this is important. 22 caliber pistol and shot it three times, missing twice at close range and landing one shot that went through his heart and lungs while he echoed out his famous last words, according to her, Lady, you shot me. Then fell over dead. The autopsy, which was quick and unmonitored, was ruled a justifiable homicide. Here's where the question lies. Is this what really happened? There are multiple theories, of course. One being that Boyer, a known prostitute, and Franklin, a known madam, surprise,
1: surprise,
0: right? With a previous criminal, a prior criminal history, a rap sheet, whatever I'm saying, that they had set him up together, that Boyer, again, knew he would be there and lured him back to that motel, that she would have insisted they go to Hacienda. Because she and Franklin were running the scheme on other people, and in fact, had been caught before running the scheme on others. So Boyer lured him back to the motel, and this is a theory, stole his wallet, beat him, shot him, and made a run for it. I've read that no money was recovered from the scene. I've also read that there was a second like, clip of money that the the cash, the wad of cash wasn't in, but like $108 was found in that in his sport jacket. The rest of it would have been in his pants. But in 1979, Boyer was charged with and found guilty of second degree murder in the shooting death of a, quote, boyfriend of hers. Another theory. Or excuse me, let me say this first. Etta James, famous singer as well. If you don't know who she was, just seriously pause. Go Google Etta James and start listening to – you're rolling your eyes, but I love this kind of music. You, I don't know about you. I don't know how he got married. It's, it's it's curious, isn't it? Quite. <laughs> so Etta James actually describes the state of Cook's body as, quote, "...nothing a woman with a broomstick could have inflicted against a full-grown man." claiming that Cook's head was practically disconnected from his shoulders. That's how badly he was beaten, his hands were broken and crushed, and they tried to cover it up with makeup, but there were massive bruises on his head. Remember how I said that Cook couldn't get the death of Emmett Till out of his head? Well, doesn't this kind of sound like Emmett Till? They claim one thing happened, and then yet his entire face is bruised and beaten beyond recognition. Cook was very well read, and he encouraged other people of color to read and support the black press. He was advocating constantly for people of color to have equal rights, as even as a celebrity, he was treated like garbage. Sam demanded various venues to allow for desegregated shows and was the first to even achieve this. Not only that, but he was the first artist to successfully reach both white audiences as well as black audiences. His songs like Chain Gang spoke of oppression and social commentary to people of color, but also landed this crisis in the ears of white people, even though they thought they just had a great upbeat tune that they were singing. So he his, his lyrical commentary was getting in their heads. Whether they realized it or not, he was bringing awareness to this social reform that needed to happen and if you haven't heard this song if you listen to only one please go listen to change is going to come which was actually released about a year after his death and it was in response to bob dylan's "Blowin' in the wind a commentary on the treatment of people of color in the u.s cook worked closely with malcolm x muhammad ali and because of this caught the attention of president hoover he also gave a lot of artists who were of color their start. He wrote their songs. He helped them produce their music. He helped them make sure they weren't being taken advantage of or taken for granted, you know, making sure they weren't being paid in cocaine and sleeping in mortuaries. So he didn't just talk about fixing things. He made active decisions he made he took action he took action to make sure that what he spoke about was actually happening knowing that it could fall back on him while other artists said don't make a scene over this he refused to play venues where he was the headliner because they wouldn't let people of color into his show because they wouldn't blend the audiences not only did sam cook help other artists like etta james aretha franklin so many others get their start and produce music without being taken advantage of and take it for granted and being paid in cocaine and and things like this. But he also worked closely with Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. And because of this, because he was in cahoots with Muslims, he caught the attention of FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, who opposed the civil rights movement. Who is suspected to have had something to do with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. You can read FBI documents about this. It's not even just conspiracy. I digress. He ignored the outcries from the death of Emmett Till and claimed that communities that communists were pushing their agenda through racial discontent. But truly, Hoover was a racist, and anyone who was somebody making waves in the civil rights movement was on his radar. Could he have had something to do with why Cook was dead? I don't know that I believe the FBI was involved completely, but this is where it gets a little bit hazy because, to me at least, 100% intuitively, I believe that it was a setup. I believe that Boyer and Franklin were certainly involved and likely paid off. And
1: from a non-intuitive, there's some pretty solid evidence that could be... That would lead you to that. It's very, too many cards falling in the right spot.
0: Right. And with like the $5,000 that was missing, I really think that this is where whoever got them involved, Boyer and Franklin, I think that they pretty much told Boyer, like, whatever he's got on him is yours.
1: Right.
0: And that that's what she took and ran with. So Cook's blood alcohol level was a 0.14 or 0.16, depending on which source you read. But it's pretty heavily intoxicated either way, yeah? He didn't rape her. She lured him to that hotel, insisting they go there rather than some swanky place. And we've already talked about how I think he could have paid for anything, but who knows with racial disparity, maybe not. She and Franklin were to lure him to the motel, got him undressed as far as I'm concerned. He was wasted. Got him, I mean, he was like, A few martinis in when he was at um, that restaurant with his friend and when he ran into Boyer and and another guitarist who was there, actually. So he was already wasted. I believe that they got him back to this motel. They had one room next to the other room where people were waiting to beat him down and kill him. I think they got him undressed and then those people came in, kicked the shit out of him, shot him. And I believe he fought back, and that's why he was so badly injured. Plus, he was drunk. So who knows how well he could have fought? Although I know a good fight can sober you up. The point is that he was ambushed. He was absolutely ambushed. I think she took his pants and she ran, but I don't believe the part about him being in the bathroom. I think she made him think they were about to have sex, then got up and ran for it because I mean, he was drunk. How fast could he have been if if she had him in a position where, whatever. Anyway, I'm getting carried away here. I do believe that there were three people waiting next door who beat and shot him. I don't believe Franklin was actively involved in his killing as far as the physical aspect of it. I think that she was part of it, absolutely.
1: She could have easily been involved in the plot.
0: Right, exactly. But I don't believe that she pulled the trigger. And I know that she said she used her twenty-two, but it was actually a thirty-two caliber bullet that was found in him. Now, I don't understand the difference there, but I know you do.
1: Twenty two probably wouldn't do as much of the damage as they're claiming.
0: What would a thirty two do?
1: Thirty two could.
0: It's a bigger bullet?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And it would be a bigger handgun or would it be a handgun?
1: It would be a handgun.
0: Okay. So that man is a man of many words. <laughs> so anyway, I this is another thing that comes up. It turns out, and this does not surprise me at all, that there are rumors. Rumors all start from something that Franklin had mob ties. I mean, she was a madam. Not that hard to believe. And the mob, hello, it's L.A., dirty cops the Absolutely. mob right there right i mean i feel like la and chicago are two of like the shadiest cities when it comes to the police department right anyway la the cops are in bed with the cops are in bed with the mob the mob is in bed with the cops whatever i'm saying there making it really easy to cover up a murder especially of a black man in 1964 at a city motel
1: who's speaking out against segregation and all the things that are...
0: Exactly. Not only that, but it would later come out that Boyer was an LAPD informant. Right? Great. They did a great job with Tupac, too. It just never ends. So who orchestrated it then? Was the FBI involved? There's one more theory to go over here. Alan Klein was hired as Sam's manager by Sam... And knew that RCA record label wasn't paying Sam the amount of money he was owed from his royalties. He was basically hired by Sam to audit everything going on there. And this guy is a shark. He's got quite a reputation. And it's it's interesting because I mentioned Tupac, but I would even go back to like Suge Knight and how we talked about how this mogul was – he was an industry mogul, but he was awful. He was tied up in gangs and drugs and – took a lot more from these artists who were down on their luck because he knew that he could get away with it. So while his, his kindness, it appeared to be kindness on the surface, it was it had some really seedy undertones. Word of the episode is seedy. So what Klein did was create this holding company called Tracy Limited, named after Sam's daughter. Isn't that sweet?
1: Oh, yeah. Totally.
0: Lends you trust, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Sam has ownership of his own music, which is huge for any artist, but especially an artist of color. Not only is it big for an artist at the time, but the fact that he is an artist of color as well. So Klein creates Tracy Limited, and it basically gives RCA exclusive rights to Sam's music for 30 years. And thanks to Klein, after that 30 years, Tracy Limited would then own them tracy limited sam is under the impression that he owns tracy limited
1: i wonder if you that impression
0: right so klein does some fancy footwork with the wording of the contract and gives himself ownership in the original contract sam was owed a one hundred thousand dollar cash advance per year for the first three years and then if he were continuing with this contract he had a two-year option after that in which he would get 75000 cash advance each year thereafter if he stuck around for those two more years. If Sam wasn't around, though, because he didn't have a will, the money stayed with Tracy Limited, which was actually owned by Alan Klein. And that first $100,000 that he was paid, this deal was made less than a year prior to his death, by the way. Less than that, excuse me, that 100000 he took in Tracy limited stock instead. Yep. So here we have Klein or the FBI, possibly both, setting Cook up to be beaten and murdered and paying Elisa and Franklin off. And whoever was involved in the beating, more than likely, dirty cops, mobsters, maybe they're both. I mean, really, who knows? It just
1: be symbols, hired thugs. Klein could have paid them off to off him.
0: Anybody. And, and money talks, right? So Sam's murdered by – I honestly can't tell you if it's just Klein or if it's also the FBI. I am stumped on this one. I have asked a number of my intuitive friends to weigh on weigh in on this as well. And all of us just feel like it's so tightly integrated that it's hard to say which actually did it, whether one had the plan to do it and the other beat them to it, or if it was all interconnected. And I mean, Klein was an industry mogul. He had connections everywhere, I'm sure, which we see a lot of even today. So anyway, Franklin Ended up suing Cook's family for emotional damages and was awarded $30,000 because she was receiving death threats at work and had to quit her job.
1: From prostitution?
0: No, she was the uh, manager of oh, the motel.
1: Right,
0: right. The yeah, man. she, yes, and a madam mm. mm-hmm. previously. I'm sure she wasn't doing that anymore.
1: Definitely got ties.
0: Yep, hundred percent. So there's a lot about this man that we didn't dip into, as I had said. But he shattered boundaries around racism and inspired so many people to fight for equality. His song "Change Is Gonna Come" continues to be an anthem for change even today. And I was thinking about this earlier, wondering if that was what inspired President 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 Barack Obama's theme for his presidency: change. Turns out that is what inspired it. I I thought that was kind of awesome. But anyway, his homicide was not justifiable. And knowing the LAPD wouldn't look into it, he was an easy and profitable target. By the way, Klein pulled a lot of shady stuff like that with other artists previously and into the future. If you still haven't heard the Emmett Till episode, Go back to listen to more of what was going on around this time in the country about the Great Migration and about what it was like for people of color then versus now and how much still has to shift and change. Remember, it's not enough to be anti-racist. We have to be actively anti-racist. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Murder and Mediumship.